We're combining all the best old school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass with Coach Bo. Welcome, everybody. This is Coach Bo. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass, the 80-20 Baseball Podcast. In this episode, episode 37, we're going to discuss two parts. we got two things we're going to discuss. In part one, it will be part one of a two-part series. Part two of this series is going to be in episode 38. Part one of the series, Fewer Pitches, Better Pitchers. We're going to discuss in this episode right here, part one, why having a plethora or a wide variety of pitches is not always a good idea and in fact most pitchers should limit the amount of pitches that they have talking about the variety of different types of pitches that they have it all revolves around the less is more philosophy remember the amount of pitches that you have to practice means you got to allocate or you got to spread out the allocation of those practice pitches and we're going to get into that and there's a lot of stuff that's involved with this but really I'm going to lay out the premise or the idea that fewer pitches is much better than adding on and having two or three breaking balls or multiple change-ups or even two types of fastballs or cut fastball or adding on. Not that if you have a cutter, that's bad. But if you just start adding pitches to have every single pitch, like you're a video game, then we're going to discuss exactly why that typically almost always comes back and lowers the production, the effectiveness of almost every pitcher. So we're going to discuss that here. And then we're going to get back to it, part two, in episode 38. And in part two of this episode, episode 37, we're going to break down a recent trend, a trend that I've seen over the last couple years, a trend in that pitchers are looking to shorten their arm path, their arm action. They're looking to shorten up their arm path from the ball glove separation up to their release point. And we're going to discuss the pros, the cons, and we're going to dive into that. I'm going to break it all down for you. And this is a trend that if you've been paying attention to, and many of you may not, and that's okay. That's not really, that's what I'm doing this for. I'm doing this for you so you don't have to go do all that research and analysis. And unless you've been doing it a long time and studying and studying, you might just kind of be something that's not too noticeable and that's understandable. Just like if I was to go into your line of work or your line of business, there's a great chance I would not see it like you. I would miss things that you would see. So we're going to discuss and break down this shorter arm path that many pitchers, especially at the major league level, I'm going to give you examples of some of these guys that are doing it. There's a good amount of the pitchers that are utilizing this and this strategy, this method, this way of improving. And we're going to break that all down in part two of this episode. So let's get into it. So I read an article not that long ago on MLB.com and I do think MLB.com has some good writers, but I also think when it comes to writing an article, they're trying to get clicks and they're trying to write something that isn't necessarily going to get players better and something that we can learn from as coaches and players that are all right from any level, even the professional level. But it's just a fun read. It's kind of almost like in a way it's like clickbait. It says like you Darvish and his 10 pitches. And so they talked about you Darvish and, and he has 10 pitches and what the article does not talk about is that you Darvish's fastball according to fan graphs it ranked in 2019 as the 322nd best fastball in the league and that's with 50 or more innings I, I took out some of those players that came up and got a few innings and maybe had a little short success or I should say maybe some early failures and didn't get back up these are pitchers of 50 or more innings he ranked 322nd with his fastball value that's not good 
if you have a fastball that does not get the job done and being ranked 322nd yet you're getting paid like you're the 32nd best player that's not really a great place to be but you know the article i get it where they're coming from they, they're trying to get readers you know they're trying to gain eyeballs and i get it but from a coaching standpoint and from a learning standpoint i think it could definitely lead you down the wrong path as a pitching coach as a head coach working with pitchers and definitely as a pitcher yourself great pitchers are great not because they have a plethora of pitches but because they compete every pitch they stay healthy most of the time they have efficient repeatable mechanics and lastly to a degree they have genetic help i.e large hands or athleticism it's not because they had 10 pitches or seven pitches or even five pitches it's not because they had a split finger knuckle cutter it's because they competed they were competitive they stayed healthy with efficient repeatable rhythmic mechanics and they had some genetic help for the most part along the way now although some of you could probably sit here and talk about players that didn't have a whole lot of genetic help or maybe were seriously under that genetic uh, outlier they were dispositioned with sub-average genetics that have gone on to great things and again we're not going to get into that here but it's just important to know that pitchers are not awesome and do not become great because they have more pitches and in fact you don't have to look further than Mariano Rivera and Mariano Rivera is so good that even like players today that are young uh, even though he hasn't pitched in like five or six years they still know who Mariano Rivera is they know who Mo is and they know of his famous cut fastball aka Mo's cutter Mo was the greatest relief pitcher of all time and he was at his best in the biggest games the playoff the world series with an unreal career era in the postseason 0. 0.7 0.70 era in 141 innings not 14 innings not 47 innings 141 innings of postseason pitching and his era was 0. 0.7 i don't want to get into advanced saber metrics on on the stats here i'll, I'll keep it with the era but if you look at all of this all the stats they're just off the charts i mean actually some of those quantitative sabermetric stats even show a better uh, a better pitching performance than just that 0.70 era which is incredible you know mo perfected all of that with one pitch he was a first ballot unanimous every single person voted for him which is <laughs> incredible he did all that with one pitch now some of you may say well you know he threw a two seamer here and there and sometimes he'd throw four he really did it with one pitch he did it with one pitch and i know there was like a little span where he did throw that fastball the straight fastball and a little two seam a little bit more often but he really perfected one pitch and here's an interesting number he earned a hundred and thirty two thousand dollars per inning throwing one pitch perfecting his mechanics competing and perfecting one grip and he made a hundred and thirty-two thousand dollars per inning i don't know what that breaks down to per pitch but it's more than ten thousand dollars a pitch because i don't think mo threw more than 13 in, uh, 13 pitches an inning so he's probably making about 10 grand a pitch so when you get really good at something that's what you make now sure genetically he's bigger than average and you know i know he had some hand size things and things going on that did give him a little bit of advantage but come on i mean there's been thousands of guys with equal genetics and being the beneficiary of things that he was born with and whatnot and they haven't done anything close to it or even made it even to pro ball in the first place or even on their high school team all right now a side note on the fastball you know with a cut fastball i do think that it has to be your super majority pitch it has to be the pitch that if you're going to throw a cutter i'm a huge fan of the the results of a cutter i think the cutter is absolutely an incredibly amazing pitch i just think that and i know 
just from a lot of experience and working with it and coaching it and also watching it closely at the major league level and the college level and the high school level guys who try to do it and and throw it regularly it's a super 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 high reward pitch but it also is a super high risk it's really hard to replicate because that last second finite touch that you got to have on it or it turns into a flattened out batting practice fastball real quick and so not to get too much into the cutter we're going to get into what i think are the three pitches that all pitchers should have and perfect and get really good at all right great starting pitchers have good command of their fastball to both sides of the plate great pitchers have good command of their fastball great starting pitchers all have good command of their fastball to both sides of the plate some of them are good at elevating it up from time to time without leaving it right there in a belt high area where it turns from a 02 chase pitch to an 02 get somebody to go chase it because it went over the fence pitch they also have a breaking ball that they can throw for strikes and they have a split i'm sorry and they have a change up or a split that they consistently keep down in the zone so let's go over that real quick they command their fastball to both sides of the plate they have a breaking ball that they can throw for strikes and they have a change up and an occasional occasionally you'll see the split that they consistently keep down in the zone a breaking ball for strikes, a changeup down in the zone that still gets swung. I'm not talking about bouncing off the plate. Although, oh, two, that's probably not always a bad idea. But my point is down in the zone, knee height or just below with two strikes, a breaking ball that's got some semi-tight spin. The tighter, the better, but at least some decent spin, decent tight spin, some good depth, some decent depth that they can throw for strikes. And they command that fastball to both sides of the plate. That's it. If you have that, you will be a Cy Young Award pitcher. If you have that, you'll be a Cy Young Award pitcher, so long as you're not throwing like 60 miles an hour, you know, with serious health issues. Let's take a look at the top 10 pitchers. Now, don't just take my word for it. Let's look at the data. Let's look, and I'm not into this, like, oh, let's look at the data because that's going to tell us. All. You know what? At the end of the day, you know, I don't, you know, anybody who's been around baseball, pitching coaches out there, guys that are older, you're listening to this, you can, you don't need to look at this war statistic over the last four decades to put this list together or at least put a pretty comparable list together. You know who's been great and who has it now these are the top 10 war pitchers war wins above replacement i'm not going to get into what stats are the best it's a decently good stat i'm sure it's not perfect well i know it's not perfect because all the people that create this stat and build their war stat whoever it is bill james or fan graphs or whatnot they they all say it's not it's not perfect but it's a very, very good uh, statistic when it comes to finding out what really changes, moves the needle and what gets a pitcher to help his team win. Number one, Roger Clemens. Let's take a look at what all these guys had in common. We're gonna go over the top 10 war pitchers over the last four decades. We're talking 40 years. These are the top 10 over the last 40 years. Roger Clemens, number one, fastball, command, both sides of the plate. He had a split finger that he almost always kept down at the knees or below. And he had a breaking ball that he threw for strikes. All right. Greg Maddox. Again, Roger Clemens wasn't over, you know, he didn't he didn't throw 98, 99. All right, he threw hard, but he didn't throw some fastball that guys couldn't see. And in today's game, his fastball wouldn't be that much higher than the average. Although he, he did have some good firm pop on that ball. Greg Maddox, number two. Fastball to both sides, change up, down and a breaking ball for a strike. Now everybody talks about Greg Maddox through 100 pitches. 
But really, it was great with the two-seam fastball. He commanded that to both sides of the plate. He threw the four-seam fastball. He commanded that to both sides. Depending on the hitter, he would throw it to certain sides. And depending on what kind of action he wanted, he loved that two-seam fastball in the lefties that could come back over the inside corner. He threw his changeup down, and he threw a breaking ball for a strike. You know, he pitched backwards. He got ahead. Fastball to both sides, changeup down, breaking ball for a strike. You're going to see a pattern here. Randy Johnson, both sides of the plate. His fastball was effective for a big dude that guy could throw his fastball to both sides of the plate with control well as he got into his career i think early on you hear some stories that he he was a little wild but hey guys the guy's massive i mean just to get that whole body going in the right direction and in the in, in the right rhythm and timing and everything is pretty impressive that he ever even came around to the point in which it did and he's a hall of famer fastball both sides of the plate and a slider that's it i mean he really threw a four seam fastball and a slider randy johnson had two grips that's it randy johnson became i mean yeah he's big and tall i get it and that's definitely an advantage but he really just said hey i'm gonna have two pitches two grips he threw a four-seam fastball, and he threw a slider. Pedro Martinez, number four on the list. Fastball, both sides of the plate, changeup down, and a breaking ball for a strike. Fastball to both sides, he threw a changeup down. Now, his changeup had some extra run on it, but my point of this is you're going to see these guys didn't throw a thousand different pitches. For the most part, they all threw three pitches or less. Now, Greg Maddox did throw some kind of a cut fastball here and there, like a hard slider. At the end of the day, he really was a fastball, changeup, breaking ball for a strike guy. And his fastball, yeah, he manipulated that fastball really well. But you know what? When you're not focusing on all these other pitches and all this, you can really just bear down and get good at those pitches that you use 95% of the time. Nolan Ryan, fastball and a breaking ball. He basically was fastball to both sides of the plate. He'd elevate it. He was really good at elevating it and breaking ball. So he controlled his fastball and he threw a breaking ball for a strike. Kurt Schilling, number six, fastball to both sides, a split finger that was almost always down and a breaking ball for a strike. Number seven, Tom Glavin. Not a very fast fastball like Maddox, but he controlled it to both sides of the plate. He had very good control of this fastball. And in his case, he had good enough control where it didn't get annihilated very often because he left it on the corners and the fringes and he worked and he nibbled. He had a changeup that was almost always down and he used that pitch a lot. And he had a slurve for a strike. He threw a slurve, kind of a slider curve for a strike. Number eight, Justin Verlander. Fastball both sides. Great breaking ball. Kevin Brown. Guy threw 75% fastballs. And I don't even think was locating that much he kind of just relied on his sink he threw a 75 percent pretty much of 75 percent mostly sinkers he would locate that four seam from time to time and he had a quality slider he was over 90 percent with just two pitches and he was number nine in the last four decades of most productive pitchers and number 10 zach granke fastball to both sides great command with the fastball change up down and a breaking ball for a strike none of his stuff just stands off the charts he competes he's competitive he's athletic and he has three pitches that he's really good with only two of those top 10 pitchers threw super hard. Randy Johnson, Nolan Ryan, those are the ones that threw super hard. And I get it, like, yeah, Pedro, you know, I mean, he, he went out there in the All-Star game in 99 and popping 97, 98 with that adrenaline, mowing everybody down. If you get a chance, go watch that YouTube video of him in the All-Star game when he mows down five of the six hitters. I think those six hitters probably combined for like 400 home runs that year, and he uh, mowed them down like they were basically not even there. Go check that out. But now most of these guys don't throw over. I know Justin Verlander, 
can bring it from time to you know and get it up there but like Kevin Brown never he was never a super super hard thrower upper 90 guy Zach Greinke's not an upper 90 guy Tom Glavin's a soft tosser Kurt Schilling kind of lived around 94 miles an hour which isn't I mean 94 to a little leaguer yeah it's a lot but to a major leaguer 94 is nothing like wow he located his fastball so incredibly well Nolan Ryan he threw hard yeah and he threw hard pretty consistently and relied on that but he threw his breaking ball for a strike, which kind of that same tunnel, which really allowed that effect of that fastball to stay up and be firm and still get swings. Randy Johnson threw hard. Yeah, he did throw hard. Greg Maddox, below average hard, especially as he became better and better, which is interesting. The, the slower he threw, the better he got because I think he just started controlling his body, controlling his pitches, and really controlled his command and, and mixed his pitches up and didn't get carried away with a thousand pitches and overthrowing. All right, now let's take a look at a quick look at some of the contemporary great pitchers. Max Scherzer, fastball to both sides, heavy use of a changeup that's usually almost always down, and a slider for strikes. Sometimes you you know he uses it to effectively to get guys to chase. But he's a fastball slider changeup, or I would even say fastball changeup, the occasional slider. He he really likes his changeup. Two Garrett Cole. I mean Garrett Cole is simply just a forcing fastball and a slider guy. You know you could call it a slurve. Sometimes it's a little harder slider, but really it's not that different for all intents purposes it's really a forcing fastball and a slider he doesn't really i mean that's it he throws a forcing fastball and a hard slider hard slurve Corey kluber fastball and and a, and a great slider and i get it these guys do mix in i'm not saying that's the only thing they throw but i'm talking like predominantly this is really where they they make their money this is where they butter that bread and, and this is where they get it done jake Degrom, here's one 97% fastball, slider, and changeup. Three pitches, 97% of the time. And interestingly enough, every season that he pitches, that, that percentage goes up. He's on pace to, you know, I mean, it started at, say, 94, 93, 92%. And now he's at 97% fastball, slider, changeup. And I would even speculate, I speculate that the pitch type might not always be super accurate when these machines, these people, uh, these uh, these electronics are, are kind of dictating, or, or I should say they're spelling out what the pitch was based off velocity and movement, things like that. They may miscategorize some of these. So it very well could just be 100% fastball, slider, changeup for DeGrom. All right, 8020 baseball coaches, that's going to wrap up part one of the pitchers using three or fewer pitches. Check part two. And in part two, we're going to get into how to coach it and what the effective strategies are when it comes to the pitches and what pitches to use. Also, we're going to look at some context in society as to why less is almost always more. Now for part two of episode 37. So I've been seeing this trend in the baseball community, and it's a lot easier to see it out on the professional level because it's on TV and you can see videos all over the internet. But I've seen it in the college level and I'm seeing it also in the youth level. But mostly it's starting at the major league level and I feel like it's going to be continuing to trickle down. And this trend is the shortening of the arm path for pitchers. So to make sure we're all on the same page with this, I want to explain exactly exactly what I'm referring to since this is audio and not a video. As I discuss arm path, otherwise also known as arm action, in this section, in this part, I'm discussing specifically when the pitcher takes the ball out of his glove, ball-glove separation or hand-ball-glove separation, and the path the ball takes on its way back and up to release point. So I'm talking about the time from when the pitcher takes the ball out of his glove, when he separates the ball from the glove, to the time he releases the ball. So this arm path or this arm action. Now some of the major league guys that are really obvious when you see this or those pitchers that are doing this 
this and it's very obvious to see it. Guys like Joe Kelly with the Dodgers, Trevor Bauer. Joe Kelly has definitely shortened up his arm path a great amount and I don't think it's benefiting him. Now, this is not a section I'm not going to discuss or go off on whether it's good or bad as a blanket statement to shorten up the arm path. I'll say this. I do believe for some pitchers, it is the way to go. I do believe that some pitchers are just flat out too long in the back. They're not efficient and optimizing their arm path when they separate from the glove and they get to that release point. But I also think that there has been, and this is why I really wanted to address this in this episode, I'm seeing an overcorrection in my opinion and having been around this for so long and studied pitching and been a pitching coach for so long and I've watched this trend come about for the last couple years, and now I'm seeing it almost as an overcorrection with certain pitchers like Joe Kelly. Now, Trevor Bauer, I think, has done a very good job with this. And you can say whatever you want about Trevor and all his antics. I think he's funny, and I kind of dig the guy for being authentic. But his arm action is pretty good. I actually think he's a little shorter than he should be, but we're talking inches, centimeters, and that is something that he's going to probably figure out and test out. One of the things that I think is important as pitchers or for any athlete for that matter is when you see improvement, that doesn't mean you're optimizing the delivery or the technique or the strategy. Improvements do not always mean optimization. In many cases, they don't equal optimizing. So you can have success. You can have more success when you make an adjustment with a technique than you did before you made the adjustment. But that doesn't mean it's the optimal adjustment. It could be, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it is. I think Trevor Bauer is pitching better now with his, he shortened it up just a little bit, not so much like Joe Kelly and some of these other pitchers you're seeing, but I think he's having a little more success with that. Now, let's talk about this trend of shortening the arm path. Years and years ago, a guy I really respect, Tom House, he's a really, really smart individual. And I really, really like what Tom House has to say about so many things. He was way ahead of the curve on the weighted ball stuff. He was testing things out with the weighted ball stuff. He was kind of the godfather of utilizing that on a bigger scale. And he has done so much other than just that. He's done so much. I think one of the things that he did so well was share and stress the importance as coaches and pitchers and players to look for the commonalities of the great players. Now, while he didn't necessarily invent this strategy of copying the grades, he did a great job and really was at the forefront with the pitching community of saying, hey, look, these are what all the great pitchers are doing, the durable pitchers. See, one thing that gets lost and one thing that I think is very, we need to be very careful with as a pitching community and a baseball community is to be careful saying X player had a lot of success and thus we need to use his strategies. Well, let's let X player play for 10 years years. Let's let player Y, player Z, let's let them play out for 15 years and stay healthy or at least relatively healthy. And let's see that they have continued success for a long time. And that's what Tom House did really well. He looked at pitchers and he said, hey, these pitchers are durable and they had success for a long time. So Tom House was out in front. There's a lot of things that Tom House is doing. He's working with quarterbacks you know, his National Pitching Association is still widespread and, and is putting out a lot of good stuff. And he's been doing a lot of great stuff with throwing quarterbacks as a throwing coach for quarterbacks, Drew Brees, Tom Brady, and and a plethora of others. And, you know, that's something that he started back when I got national pitching certified. He was starting to get into that. And I thought that's really cool. Took a lot of his knowledge and applied it to football. Now, why I brought up Tom House was Tom said years ago that 
arm action and the arm path is genetic or it's it's something that you really can't teach and surely this arm action this arm path that a pitcher or a thrower makes or creates or does or goes through or produces definitely is very habitual and is something that was probably learned when they were young and started to throw but i do believe i firmly believe a suboptimal arm path can be improved so a suboptimal arm action can be improved now again are we overdoing it are we overreacting are we overcorrecting and i think some pitchers are over shortening their arms and it's causing issues one of the big things I see is breaking balls backing up. I see a lot of breaking balls backing up. In other words, they flatten out a little bit. They back up. They don't have as good a depth, meaning the break doesn't happen as close to the plate, which is optimal. Anytime you're a pitcher, you want your breaking ball to really break to say, drop off the table. You really want that depth. So in the baseball community, the, the term depth means that the curveball doesn't just make a rainbow arc. It, it really does kind of come out. It tunnels out of the hand and it looks like a fastball. It doesn't really have this rounded kind of curve. It comes out relatively on the same path as the fastball and then it breaks hard and sharp late. As close to the plate as possible, but definitely not too late or you know that's going to be a flattened breaking ball and it's not good. So you want to have some depth. And I think that the shortened arm path and if you look closely pitchers are backing up breaking balls more often the problem with that is if you back up a breaking ball it typically flattens out and it doesn't have the spin it doesn't have the characteristics that produce great breaking balls flattened out breaking ball is much easier to hit the breaking ball itself is not something that is always going to be accurate but i'm telling you when i see these shorter overly short arm actions these shorter arm paths that are shorter than they probably should be that and again every pitcher is going to be a little different a little more unique depending on how long how tall they are how long their arms are their strength their their mobility their flexibility their joint integrity with their arms and things like that their external rotation and stuff like that it's it's going to be different for each pitcher but it's going to be similar overall and if you see that these shorter arm pitchers these shorter arm path guys are just backing up and they're getting a little less depth in my opinion what i'm seeing they're getting less depth with their breaking ball it's backing up more often it's squirting out is another word that people another term people use another way of saying it It squirts out and they don't get that what happens what i'm seeing is that they don't get the hand and finger location the hand and finger placement the location of it at release point the hand and finger location and placement at release point to the right spot it's not consistent it will be there one pitch it may be there a couple pitches but i'm not seeing it as consistent now this has always been an issue with pitching everything consistency and repeatability has always been an issue with pitching which is why sometimes the best pitchers don't have the best stuff metric wise or velocity wise but they repeat look at kyle hendricks you know these guys like that they repeat they repeat they repeat so if you took their head or their feet or their arms and their shoulders and everything their release point and you just mapped it out over the course of a season it's going to be very very similar over and over again so breaking balls and things like that and mechanics do vary but i am seeing a little bit more of a variation more inconsistency with this shorter arm path this when it's overly shortened now i do think that there are a lot of long arm paths that need to be shortened up so i'm not a proponent of long or short i'm a proponent of the optimal arm path for each pitcher sometimes it's a little longer jared weaver was an outstanding pitcher the guy was an absolute stud jared was just a heck of a pitcher and he was super long in the back super long but that guy was a great athlete he had big hands and he really he knew how to pitch he had control had you know good balance i know his mechanics weren't all that great as he got further along with his career but he was such a good athlete he could go long with it buy himself time and get out in front to a consistent release point 
Most pitchers can't get away with that. Most pitchers need to shorten it up or find that optimal path. Now, I think some pitchers are going further the shortened way than they should. And that's really a big point I wanted to make. I think it's important that we don't overcorrect. But I do think it can be optimized for a lot of pitchers. Now, one way that I I hear a lot of suggestions on this, and this is something that I found out years ago, just trial and error on myself, weighted balls, just throwing a two pound or a one pound. Now, this isn't a prescription. I'm not prescribing any routine. I'm just throwing out some numbers that I tried, just some examples. I worked with just some two pound, one pound, three pound balls and not four pound. And I would throw these and I clearly felt my arm in the back from when I separated my hands to the release point. I clearly, clearly, clearly felt it find a the best way because if it didn't find the best path, the optimal, the most efficient path, then you felt that stress on your arm tenfold versus that five ounce baseball. It forces the pitcher or it requires the pitcher doesn't really it doesn't it doesn't force it in the sense that you can still screw up your arm path with a heavier ball and you can get hurt but it really does make for a great drill to improve the efficiency of your arm path now if you start getting too heavy like when I see these guys throw medicine balls and they're throwing 10 pound, 15 pound medicine balls, they're really just throwing it like a shot put. That's terrible for improving your arm path. It may be good. I'm not a big fan of that very much. I think med balls are great, but I, I'm not a big fan of this throwing it like a shot put. I think it trains the body in an inauthentic way, and I'm not a fan of that. But I definitely like med ball usage and med ball slams and overhead throws and reverse throws and things like that. I'm a big fan of that and some rotational stuff. I do think the weighted ball, and this is out there, and this is being discussed, the weighted ball can help make, or a football. A football is a great way to go try to throw a football with a incorrect arm path. You're not going to, one, you're not going to throw a spiral. Two, it's also going to feel awkward. It's going to feel, you're going to feel a little more stress on that shoulder and maybe a little more stress. You're going to feel it in your shoulder probably more than anything, but maybe in your elbow a little. I think that weighted balls can help correct this. In fact, I think weighted balls actually are, this is probably their best use, is to increase the mobility and the the range of motion of the shoulders in a good way, in so long as that it's done properly. Again, I'm not prescribing a workout here. This is something, this would be a much more in-depth, there's a a rest component, a periodization component to this. There's definitely an on-ramping component to all this, but I'm just throwing this out in general. I do think that weighted balls can help get the external rotation better in the arms, not necessarily something you want to do without proper rest or mid-season, things like that. But I do think that can help out in getting that, you know, anytime you can have an arm that's mobile. And so to finish up also on that point, I do believe that the weighted ball can help the pitcher find a more efficient arm path. The problem is the pitcher's going too heavy with this and now you're having to manipulate the ball or your arm in kind of an unnatural arm path because the ball is so freaking heavy. And, and, And I'm not talking super heavy, like five pounds maybe way too heavy. Again, I'm not prescribing certain weights here. I've gone out one pound, two pound, three pound, and even up to a four pound ball. Now I'm six foot seven, six foot eight, 250 pounds, and I exercise. I've been working out. I stay in good shape, and I throw and I use med- I use uh, plyo balls as part of my actual workout, not to get into shape to pitch, not to be an athlete, but it's just part of my routine. My shoulders are super strong because I make it a focus of my workout. I'm big on shoulders. I'm big on hips, and I'm big on knees and the, the core. I'm big on shoulder strength. I think that's super huge. 
I'm definitely big on lower body, of course. If you you know you don't want to have them chicken legs and be all buff up Popeye up top, but I'm big on the shoulder strength. So even that said, I go out and I use these two one pound, and I can feel it when I screw up and my arm doesn't go through the right path, or maybe my layback is not timed right. The sinking of the timing, the tempo is not right. I feel it. It's instant feedback. Something you got to be real careful with, but I definitely think there's some benefits there. All right, and my last point, and this is my most important point for you listeners. You guys, listen to this. All that stuff that I said I believe is truly important and pertinent to this topic of the arm action, the arm path, and as this trend moves forward with maybe shortening it up and manipulating it using, and I see guys using a fitness ball like a beach ball that they tuck in their elbow, so you got to keep the ball from falling out, and you guys, you've seen these videos a lot of you, and if you haven't, you can see it online, and I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of using that because that that in and of itself dictates how the arm the angle of the elbow the angle elbow and I the elbow angle sorry that dictates the elbow angle I don't like that I think that the body will feel it out but I do think that a five ounce baseball is not gonna give you the feedback when you're inefficient or when you're not on the right path I do think that there are some drills like that I'm not a big fan of yet I may change my mind on that I'm, I'm not sold on it I've looked at that for years I've tested it out I'm not sold on sticking a ball, a big ball in, in my with my bicep and my forearm and you know keeping my elbow locked at a certain angle until I go to throw. I do think that that's going to vary from pitcher to pitcher. So maybe if you use a different ball, but does it have to be less than 90, 90? Where are we at with that? I think that's more of an individual thing, but I do think that the weighted balls can help. This last point is so important. The the main issue that I see with pitching, not, not, not say overuse, but the main thing I see mechanically, the main problem I think that keeps pitchers from getting better faster and pitching coaches from getting their pitchers and their players better faster is they get too focused up top. They look up and they need to look downward. They need to look down at the feet. They need to look at the base. Really, it starts with the legs and the feet and and, and, and kind of goes from there. Pitching coaches, pitchers, stop, please stop and stop looking up at the hands. You know, that's one of the biggest gripes I have with a lot of this stuff. You know, I went over to Driveline. I like visiting. I, I got a tour. I've studied them. I've been studying all that. And, I, and, I, and again, I've done all. I was using weighted balls back in 2004. So I was using them well before any of this stuff was ever around. Tom House and I got trained by Tom and, and, and his crew. We were doing all this stuff. I'm, I'm a big fan, or I should say I'm a big student of this stuff. But something that just thing we got to be super careful with. And those people that have been around baseball for a long time, they know this. In fact, Bob Bennett, the old... Bob Bennett recently passed away. He was a Hall of Fame coach for Fresno State. He wrote a book titled Pitching from the Ground Up. I don't hear anybody talking about that book. I don't see it out there. I I see all these other books getting talked about. Now, that book is definitely dated, but just the title of it in and of itself, the message, the paradigm that Coach Bennett was trying to get across to the reader, to the coaches, to the pitchers, to the players was, hey, Pitching starts from the ground up. And I think the biggest issue that we're seeing when it comes to mechanics is we as a pitching community and a baseball community are looking and getting caught up in spin and rate. And, you know, where our hand is on the Edgar Tronic, thousand frame per second camera. We need to sit there and really optimize. Now, that's okay. So long as you optimize the feet, the legs, the hips, the core, you need to optimize from the ground up. Much of what's going on upstairs is a symptom of the roots of the root maybe a root problem or just the the root movement that starts down below so if you want to fix the major issues i think tom house does a great job of explaining this fix yourself in a position get yourself to a good position and then move from there but it really started with where their feet were at
So before we start to fix the arm path and the arm action and our grips, before we start doing that, or at least simultaneously at the least, we need to optimize the leg movement, you know, stride direction, the balance, the, the center of gravity, where that's at in relationship to our body as we move down, as a pitcher moves down the, the pitching mound, down the slope. Now that really starts in the weight room and that starts with conditioning out on the field and training in upper body, or sorry, lower body strength and core strength. That's really where you develop great movement, great quality movement with the lower half, but that needs to be optimized my last point kind of tying it up is I see a lot of these major league pitchers and again major league because you see them so easily every day on TV now these major league pitchers are rushing their feet their legs their tempo is not very good their balance is not very good their dynamic movement their dynamic balance their quality of their leg movement is not very good the timing the sequencing of their leg movement is not optimal and so what they're doing is they're trying to speed up their arm to match that and this and they're racing forward and this is a big red flag don't fix don't don't fix your arm path to speed up to catch up with your legs. Adjust your legs, get your legs stronger. And this is all milliseconds. So it's not like I'm saying, hey, go really slow and Dan Heron, hold your leg lift at the top. What I'm talking about here is optimizing the legs before you really get so carried away with the upper body. And that's one of the problems I have where I see a lot of this stuff going on. It's talking about fixing the, the grips and the, the, the pitch design and things like that. And I just see pitchers, especially at the youth level, high school level that just have so far to go with the quality movement of their lower body. The legs and core dictate much of what the arm can and cannot do. Nothing the pitching arm does will override a bad lower half, at least not consistently. The arm is very much along for the ride. The arm, the pitching arm, is very much along for the ride it's not the driver the driver's downstairs it's along for the ride it does play a part and it can be optimized the arm path but let's be careful not to get so distracted looking up top and not get that tunnel vision up top we talk about tunneling and tunneling our pitches well let's not tunnel our view of pitching mechanics because we don't don't want to tunnel in this case we want to be able to look downstairs and work from there all right so if you're a good pitching coach you are going to find out exactly how to optimize the lower half and we've talked about this in I'll continue to talk about this. I have pitching videos that have broke this down from, you know, especially like with runners on base where you got to be a little faster, the power sidestep, things like that. It's all about the lower half. I don't mention anything about the arm. I don't mention anything about the arm or the arm path or any of that. Now, that's not to say you can't be optimized and made more efficient, which I do believe is true. So I covered a lot. This podcast is not about picking a side and sticking with it. It's not about any side. It's about giving you the best way to go about it, the optimal way, that 80-20 way. That finishes up here with episode 37. We'll see you back here in episode 38 where we're going to get into part two of better pitchers using fewer pitches. So fewer pitches, better pitchers. We'll get into it more in episode 38, so you don't want to miss that. Until then, take care of yourself. Take care of your families, keep your head up, stay strong, and we'll see you in the next episode. Take care. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.